questions are inherent kind of a political process because the questions that we formulate will determine the insights we generate. And the question then is, who formulates the questions? It has a kind of a power position and it could be a power symmetry if you're not inclusive in how you go about formulating the questions. And it is likely so that some questions never get posed because the people that care about the questions are not part of the process of formulating the questions. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Stefan, welcome to The Foil. You're calling in from Brooklyn in New York, I believe, where you are based. However, your work is international, giving you the founder of GovLab at New York University. Could you share with us your story, how you got to this role and what the work is that you do right now? Thanks so much, Christy and Adam, for having me. It's always a pleasure talking with both of you and also learning about all the great work you are doing. So yeah, as you mentioned, I'm the co-founder of GovLab. GovLab is an action research center focused on how do we transform the way we make decisions using new technologies. And specifically, we focus on how do we, on the one hand, enable new ways of engaging with people, which we quite often call collective intelligence, where we really try to focus on who knows what and how do we bring that kind of supply of expertise to the uh, table when decisions are made. That's one big area. And the other area, of course, surprise, surprise, is around data, where we focus on how do we unlock data in order to inform decisions and uh, change the way we go about designing public services or change the way we go about uh, solving public problems. And so we, together with Beth Novak, uh, I co-founded GovLab almost eight years ago. And prior to that, I was um, head of research of a private foundation uh, where I'm still a senior advisor, which is called the Markle Foundation. And the Markle Foundation, it's a mission, especially at the time when I uh, joined the foundation, about 20 years ago uh, was to look into how do we leverage information and information technology to address critical public needs. And so within that role, I was tasked to really figure out how do we find ways to use information, which was the whole term of data and uh, information technology to, for instance, transform healthcare in the US or to transform national security. Meaning, as you might remember, 9-11 was similar uh, as, I guess, COVID, which was really a wake-up call as it relates to um, the use of data, both in good and bad uh, uh, ways. Uh, And so we did a lot of work around the use of data to uh, keep people safe as well, but doing so in a manner that respects civil liberties and so on and so on. And anyway, by doing that work, I became fascinated that actually what is quite often at the core of our challenges as a society is the fact that we really are not as sophisticated as we should be in making decisions as it relates to societal problems. And so that's why, anyway, Ben and I really try to hone in 
on the aspect of decision-making and the way we actually go about solving problems, right? Because it ultimately is all about reviewing what are the needs, what are the options to address those needs, and how can we make sure that the level of uncertainty as it relates to the options uh, is uh, limited based upon more insight and based upon better uh, data. And so that's a hindsight uh, what uh, uh, why we were doing this. I'm going to stop here, Christy, because I'm sure you don't want to hear my full life story um, because that uh, uh, that in itself might uh, uh, might anyway bore your audience for sure. Stefan, we first met when you were in Melbourne uh, keynoting uh, Swinburne's uh, data labs, the soda team and Jane Farmer, Dr. Jane Farmer, where she facilitated a conversation and conference around Society 4.0. And, you know, you were speaking about the value of data collaboration and data collaboratives for public benefit and giving example use cases of how data is being used to solve wicked problems in place, but also across issue areas. And for me, that was really exciting to see that because it was a global movement, not just something that Adam and I and our team were working on in our, in our grassroots um, focus. So I'm really keen, that was about three years ago, could you share with us what's happened in the international landscape around the use of data or information, as you've pointed out, for public benefit? What are the key themes and where do you think we're going? I remember that moment with good memories because that was a really important conference. And again, we're wonderful people at the conference as well. But obviously, a lot has happened since. And of course, if you think about the last two years, I think COVID has been a watershed moment as it relates to the realization that a lot of the data we need, we don't have access to. And that we really, as a society, we need to step up our game in really making progress in unlocking data assets that can, in the context of COVID-19, actually save people's lives, right? Because it was not anymore about some kind of an abstract notion that you need data uh, for anyway, doing some kind of wonderful data analytics. I think COVID-19 has been a wake-up call to say is that if we don't have data, people will die, right? And if we don't have data, we won't be able to uh, rapidly develop a, a vaccine. If we don't have data, we won't know whether anyone is actually, um, anyway, um, uh, any complying with some of the um, non-pharmaceutical interventions, which were the only interventions that we had at the beginning of COVID-19. So data uh, has become clearly more pronounced and the value has become more pronounced. Now, does that mean that everyone now, of course, is uh, opening up and providing access? That's obviously not the case, which means that we need to make progress on a variety of uh, areas and we see progress being made. The first one is really about making progress in becoming more intentional uh, for which we need data for, right? And uh, in the past, a lot of the open data discussions were quite often discussions about facilitating access to data without clearly specifying the purpose for which the data could be used or clearly having an understanding what is the demand for which we need to make data available. Now, clearly, I think the objective is still very much value, valued of having open as a default, but the lesson learned was that quite often the data assets we need for particular kind of public interest purposes were not made available because the public interest purposes were never specified. So we need to be more intentional and be more purposeful, which we call uh, in the 
and again, this is not uh, only GovLab, but uh, there's a movement towards uh, what we call publish with purpose, right? Having a clear understanding on what are some of the priority areas that we need data for. Here, we also have um, uh, made big advance in actually being able to formulate purpose because the reason quite, quite often, uh, Christy and Adam, why we don't have a clear purpose specification is because it's not easy to actually have a clear purpose specification. Uh, problem definition and more importantly, question definition turns out to be a skill set that uh, not many are taught, right? Uh, quite often people in anyway, going into policy um, assume that they know how to define a problem or they assume that this is not a skill set that needs to be acquired. And it uh, turns out it is actually a skill set. It's uh, We do need a lot more methodologies uh, on defining problems and we need a lot more what I call a new science of questioning in order to identify the questions that matter for which we need data. Because without that, it's going to start from the data. We all know that it might lead us somewhere, but it might not answer the questions that matter, right? And I think that's uh, the first big area, uh, Christy, that I feel um, has uh, become more pronounced, where there is more and more work around. And, uh, and it is one of the elements that um, um, clearly um, is a result of also COVID-19 as well. So fascinating that you're pointing that out, the difficulty in establishing upfront a purpose or a clear intention of what you want to do with the data once shared is um, is one that's still important for people. Uh, we help people a lot in formulating what purpose they might have for the data that they're requesting from various agencies and partners. But, you know, often we want for there to be a much less stricture around that purpose as well of data consulting and data science. There's often an important step in the project that we're going to do some exploratory analysis, you know, which is really important, not just for the practitioner to get an understanding of what is in that data and uh, what are some of the patterns and features and so forth, but also exploratory analysis leads to questions and, and inspires questions as well that you would never even really have thought of until you saw it. Stefan, what are some of the examples of the data that you're uh, that you're thinking of, in particular, you know, around the, the COVID-19 pandemic? What were some of the data sources that you saw that were being asked for, that were being shared, that were being unlocked where, you know, it was clear in this case that there was a, a benefit to doing that? The first category was obviously open government data, right? And I think we've seen uh, the power of open government data through, anyway, dashboards like the John Hopkins dashboard that, anyway, has become like the icon of COVID-19 uh, with regard to sharing insight as it relates to the pandemic. And I think, uh, importantly, here is that, uh, and we've done a study with uh, uh, the OECD on how open data was used at the early stages of COVID-19. And I think it was interesting that actually open data became a means to communicate with the public, right? Which wasn't there before. In the past, open data was quite often uh, a tool to um, excite uh, some nerds like uh, all of us, but not the public at large. And I think uh, open data has been used as a way to actually communicate with the public at large, which uh, anyway is an interesting uh, development and a phenomenon as well. Now, in addition to open government data, uh, we obviously uh, have seen also a lot of privately held data been made available. And it ranges from uh, mobility data. And by mobility data, we mean, for instance, call detail records, right, uh, which is uh, collected by uh, 
cell phone uh, companies. Just to give you an example, the European Commission has an agreement with telecom operators in every European country to share data on an ongoing basis to monitor the uh, mobility patterns across the European Union as it relates to COVID-19, right? So this was this is a radical um, uh, advance in the collaboration between the private sector and the public sector, which wasn't there before and has set a clear precedent that this can happen, right? It's not like something that, anyway, as aspirational, uh, uh, I think they have proven that it can be done. Was it easy? No, uh, but that's another uh, story. So cell phone data as a type of mobility data. We've also seen the so-called SDK data, right? Software development kit data being used a lot more, which basically is data that is collected each time when you use an app, right? Uh, and then there is a, a signal uh, being said quite often about location, about, about time. Uh, and, uh, and that can be used again for um, uh, understanding patterns of movement, for instance, or even for understanding how long are the waiting lists uh, in front of a, a, a supermarket, right? Uh, if you are, um, if you want to um, mitigate the risks of, uh, for instance, having people stand in line waiting to uh, access uh, um, some kind of uh, uh, buildings that are limited because of social distancing purposes. And other mobility data, for instance, GPS data has been used uh, also for mobility purposes. Now, in addition to that, uh, we've seen a lot more data being used by so-called Internet of Things or new sensors like thermometers that have been acting as sensors, right? Uh, but also even Internet of Things sensors to uh, show anyway, mobility patterns as well. And then on top of that, anyway, uh, you have retail data that can also understand, for instance, supply chain challenges, as you might remember, especially here in Brooklyn, and I'm not sure why that was, but at a certain point in time, toilet paper was very high in demand at the early stages of uh, uh, of uh, uh, COVID-19 and being able to monitor that, right, and identify uh, scarcity, which could be, anyway, as you know, catastrophic if you don't have toilet paper anymore. But uh, um, that's, uh, anyway, that was one application. Anyway, all joking aside, it was also used for, for instance, in uh, Taiwan, really interesting project where it was used at the early stages to monitor um, where you could get a mask, right, because there was not only toilet paper, masks were on in short supply, and uh, and that uh, uh, could be done by privately held data. Anyway, that's just the top of the iceberg, uh, Adam, and I hope that uh, this makes a point, which I hope uh, um, read, uh, listeners take away, is that there is massive amount of data opportunities if we really start thinking about who has data and just think about the fact that every organization that has undergone a data transformation, i.e. they're now digital, every organization is now a data organization. And that can be uh, leveraged uh, uh, for public good. And that's what we need to do. It's so fascinating because, yes, when we start to understand how we can use data, public and private data, to answer those critical questions, then suddenly we all can see how when we ask the right questions, then we can drive toward data collaboration across the ecosystem, the data ecosystem. I'm really interested to pick up on what you said earlier, how we, we nerds get super excited about the possibilities. How do you scale question science? Good question again, Christy. 
what we hope to do is to develop uh, high value questions, right? Or questions that matter at kind of initially the international level or the, the global level. But the same methodology can be applied at the local level, at the national level. And so it entails a few steps. Uh, the first step is to really develop what we call a gestalt of the problem uh, field. Uh, anyone who uh, has ever had psychology in uh, uh, high school will probably know uh, that a gestalt is basically what you, anyway, if you think about, if, if you see a few components of a of an illustration, then you automatically see the full illustration. So it's basically the what are the minimum components that comprises a topic field? And why is this important is because too often we are focusing on uh, what are the other, anyway, more easy way of talking about it is we focus on the tree and we forget the forest uh, or we get lost in the forest, right? And so we really need to find a way to actually scope a problem, the problem field, and then uh, solicit input from what we call bilinguals, but that could also be, anyway, community members, uh, or it could be um, uh, randomly selected uh, kind of citizens, if you, if you do it in a citizen's assembly, for instance. But anyway, you curate uh, a group, a cohort, to then formulate questions around those uh, the topic mapping. And that is, again, not a uniquely uh, new methodology. It's quite often based upon anyway, the Delphi methodology, where you actually curate a group of experts, and then you solicit and source uh, their input, which is, by the way, also, and again, I might distract uh, too much, but it's also what they do more and more in forecasting, as you might know. Now there's all kinds of forecasting challenges where you have cohort of so-called super forecasters. And so what we try to do is who are the super questioners, right, that you can bring to the table and that uh, they basically can, by understanding the domain, by understanding the potential of data, and by being guided by this topic uh, mapping, you can then actually source them on what are the kinds of questions that matter, which ones should you prioritize and why, and then how do you then match that with data. So that's a methodology. And as every methodology, it can be scaled, it can be adjusted uh, to the local level, it can be adjusted to the national level, like for instance, what are the 100 questions in Australia, or it can be uh, uh, adjusted to the um, international level, like what should be the questions for the United Nations to uh, tackle. And uh, that's, anyway, one way to scale it is by actually having a methodology that you can apply in different kinds of contests. And that is, frankly, problem agnostic, right? It's not about the problem. It's really about how you get to the people that can help you formulate those questions. I'm curious about that because one of the things that you're, you're seeing, I think, internationally is this idea and notion of question equity. Can you talk a bit about question equity, what that really means and and then how you we are inclusive in this process? Very good point. And I forgot, of course, to mention one additional step in our process is actually by engaging with the public at large, whether those questions resonate and whether these are the ones that they care about as well. But by questions equity, it basically goes to the observation that questions are inherent kind of a political process, right? Because the questions that we formulate will determine the insights we generate. And uh, and the question then is, 
is who formulates the questions, right? Because uh, it, it has a, uh, um, a kind of a power position, right? And it could be a power symmetry if you don't, if you're not inclusive in how you go about formulating the questions, because it might be, uh, and it is likely so, as we already have seen, that some questions never get posed because the people that care about the questions are not part of the process of formulating the questions. And so we need not only to focus on data equity, which is, of course, a well-established now um, uh, movement to make sure that A, people are included in the data and B, is being used in an equitable manner. But we also need questions uh, equity, uh, a, a far more inclusive process to actually formulate the questions that matter, which, by the way, could also lead to the metrics that we're going to use to decide uh, what matters, right? And as we all know, that metrics, right, are a very powerful governance tool, right? Because you use the metrics to decide, anyway, whether you make progress or not. But at the same time, they're quite often skewed because uh, they are anyway, measuring a certain set of indicators that have been determined um, to be important. And the question is, was everyone consulted when that determination was made that these are the ones that matter, right? And so that's what I mean by questions um, equity. And anyway, I could go on on the, the importance and the, the, the challenge of indicators because they are a powerful tool, but they're also a dangerous tool if they are uh, anyway not developed in a inclusive manner. I'm really interested in picking up on, on the theme that you've mentioned just a number of times now, which is around power. So you've spoken about being intentional with data and the power of that, power inherent in questioning data. And some groups have been outside of that questioning process, which is disempowering, which is how I'm interpreting what you're saying. And then the power inherent in understanding the metrics that we use to understand what matters. Can you talk about the power dynamics in this in this ecosystem? A lot of the power dynamics are determined by asymmetries, right? Uh, and so one kind of asymmetry is the ones that have data and those that don't have data, right? And that automatically um, fuels a certain power asymmetry because especially in the current day and age where basically, and this is, by the way, anyway, was already developed by uh, Francis Bacon, uh, who basically indicated that knowledge is power, right? Well, the same thing is data is power, where uh, those that have data are in a better position to actually anticipate and see the world, and as a result are, anyway, quite often um, in a more powerful position, whether this is within government uh, or whether this is within industry uh, or even civil society for that matter, depending on how it is being used, right? Now, there are, the, the question then is, of course, how do we know what are the different asymmetries that exist? And I think that's one area that I feel we haven't really spent as a society a lot of time on to really come up with a taxonomy of data asymmetries. Because one data asymmetry is the asymmetry between consumers and industry, right? Where consumers share data and then they don't have access to the data. And as a result, there is a power asymmetry between the consumers and the uh, corporation that collects and use their data to influence them with regard to uh, consumption uh, patterns. Again, we can have a whole argument on whether this is good or bad. I'm just uh, pointing that there is an asymmetry. The other uh, asymmetry is then, of course, uh, between uh, business and business, right? And we all know that, um, uh, and McKinsey have already pointed to, that we are getting a, an increased uh, data divide between the data monopolies 
and the rest of uh, uh, the world that don't have access to that data. But then the other data asymmetry and the one that we have spent a lot of time on, uh, well, there are two other ones. One is between citizens and government, right? which is why open data is important and why uh, open government data is a way to actually deal with that power asymmetry. But then it's about also business to government. The fact that business has data, government needs the data, and they don't have it. And as a result, you actually have a very weird power asymmetry around data in society at the moment between existing institutions uh, around data. And so having a taxonomy uh, of this data will also inform us ways to actually go about it. And uh, as it relates to the first one, where the asymmetry between citizens or consumers and, and those that collect data, uh, we have come up with a new um, effort to uh, reestablish and empower uh, individuals and groups, right? Uh, which is around this concept of digital self-determination, right? Which is really about empowering individuals and groups, such as, for instance, indigenous groups, uh, to really uh, uh, be able to determine what data is being collected, but more importantly, how it is being used. And that does not mean, right, that we are advocating for data not being used. It's just about how can you determine how it is being used and in what way, right? And I think uh, we need a lot more experimentation in that field that goes beyond consent. Uh, while consent has been a fundamental bedrock of uh, privacy and um, fair information practices, we all know that it's fairly flawed when it comes to the reuse of data for other purposes. And that's where self-determination to determine how can it be reused for other purposes will become more and more important. I want to link this back to what you were talking about earlier, where we were discussing the ways in which data had been shared throughout the pandemic for benefit. And one thing you said was that a lot of the data sharing, you described it as a radical advance in collaboration to be able to share this data and spoke about a couple of the use cases, which, you know, involved a lot of the time, whether it was government data or private data, data that involved the ability to track people, essentially to track movement. It's interesting, the framing to describe that as a radical advance in collaboration, where it would appear, you know, on inspection that there might be some ways that you could frame that or phrase that that might inspire people to be a little bit more, you know, anxious. And it seems to be connected with this notion of digital self-determination, wherein you want people to have agency in the uh, the way that their data is collected, what data is collected about them and how it's to be used. So there seems to be a tension there. How do you navigate the space between those two concepts, allowing data to be shared to pursue that advance in collaboration whilst also giving people the digital self-determination that you're speaking of? Thanks, Adam. And any suggestions, welcome. I totally agree with you. And again, I don't want to sound as if this is easy, right? Nor do I want to sound as if this is, anyway, that doesn't have any potential for misuse, right? I think uh, as I quite often position it, this is really about preventing misuse while preventing missed uses of data, right? And I think that's really the task that we as a society have to figure out, right? It's not either or, it's actually both that we need to um, seek to uh, make progress on. And clearly, uh, you can have a whole argument on uh, the surveillance capitalism. And first of all, should 
should they collect the data in the first place, right? I mean, our assumption is that assuming that the data was collected in a legal and appropriate way, right? Uh, because obviously we don't advance and advocate for reusing data that was not collected in a legal and appropriate way. The question is, of course, how can we start reusing it? But that does not mean, right, that we need to go the extra mile and really develop what we call a social license for actually reusing data. Because again, it comes back to the concept of reuse, right? Data was collected for one purpose and we have pretty, anyway, good kind of, anyway, and it could be always improved, but we have, anyway, fairly well-established procedures for that uh, transaction, right? Quite often around consent and other info fair information practices. But when we start reusing the data for other purposes than initially content, uh, intended, right? Um, then we really need to start uh, thinking about acquiring an, an additional layer of social license. Now, how do you get that? Well, there are a variety of ways to do that. One is, of course, if there is a clear public interest demand, right, that has been formulated by those that have a social license, then that can anyway provide a social license to actually have access to data. But there are other ways which we have experimented, which, which is true, for instance, the creation of citizens' assemblies, where you bring in both stakeholders like NGO groups that represent certain kinds of uh, stakeholders that are very hard to reach, such as, for instance, homeless or migrants or refugees, but you also anyway, engage with the public at large as well. Here in New York, we've created something called the Data Assembly, which is a citizen's assembly around the reuse of data to actually determine what could be um, appropriate um, repurposes for reuse with whom and um, under what conditions, right? And what we did was basically a process in which we first introduced the uh, concepts such as uh, data uh, de-identification, right? Or uh, anonymization, meaning before you can have that conversation, you actually do need to introduce some of the concepts to have, anyway, a meaningful conversation. And then we, anyway, presented a variety of scenarios, such as, for instance, a scenario where city government had access to cell phone data to understand mobility patterns. And then we tested what were the expectations, right? Does that resonate? Uh, under what conditions? And uh, it turns out, Adam, is that people are quite sophisticated it, because this is not a binary discussion, right? It's not about are you for or against. It's really about it depends. <laughs> and we don't have that kind of way to um, have quite often that conversation about how is it that it depends, right? And I think that's really what we need to do more, which is really trying to understand what are the kind of conditions that people care about, such as they care about with whom is it uh, shared, right? They don't, anyway, and it's not about government as one box. It's about who within government uh, they, it is shared, right? Or uh, what kind of data? Turns out cell phone data, they were not that worried about. Bank data, they were really worried about and felt like that was a, a step too far. And so that's the conversation that we need to have. And I'm not saying that it means that we, anyway, should assume that every application is appropriate and is seen as uh, advancing. I think it's about, as a society, we need to come up with what is appropriate and what is a clear, anyway, line that you don't want to cross and then uh, work within those parameters. Thanks, Stefan. I'm curious about how countries around the world are dealing with this because it comes to the core issue that we spoke about earlier, which is the inherent power structures and how we deal with this. Uh, in Australia, we have a, a legislation um, that's got, just recently gone to the House, which is the Data Sharing and Transparency Act. How are other nations 
dealing with this issue and more broadly, what does social license mean? You can get a social license through legislation, right? So that's an, if there's uh, assuming that the legislation anyway was done in a democracy where clearly um, anyway it was a result of due process and uh, uh, and as a result of elected officials uh, providing that license, right? And again, that's a whole different uh, conversation and, and I'm already long-winded enough that I don't want to go uh, too far into that uh, um, that that area. But to, anyway, pick up your first question, which are what are countries doing or what is happening as it relates to policy and legislative field? Well, we see a lot more activity indeed by governments to um, to try to come up with an environment in which um, access to private data, but also access to sensitive data held by governments are made more accessible, right? And uh, of course, anyway, Europe is one place where there's a lot of activity. It's very likely that the so-called Data Act will be released after this uh, podcast. Um, but the Data Act, anyway, as far as we know, is trying to really develop a, a legislative framework to provide access to business data, privately held data for government, including statistical agencies, right? So there's a lot of movement around having statistical agencies uh, having access to privately held data to improve their statistics. We see that in other countries as well, where they are reshaping their statistical laws to broaden their mandate to also not just deal with, for instance, statistical data, but also with so-called big data. So that's another uh, movement. But we also see increased movement in anyway the banking world, like open banking, for instance, is of course an, an area around this notion of data portability, right? And that's another key element that is um, advancing a lot, where uh, data is become or is made fluid so that it can be shared more easily. The other areas that we see is around specific sectors, like in the US, you have the Social Media Act and other acts that are being proposed where um, there will be a mandate to open up social media data for researchers, for instance, right, to understand election uh, behavior as well. So anyway, just uh, uh, to summarize this is that governments have woken up, right, um, and um, that doesn't mean that they, anyway, have a clear understanding of how to do this, but there will be a lot more experimentation uh, moving forward. And I think now is the moment to actually experiment more uh, before it gets codified, uh, because uh, that's really what we need. We need a lot more practice uh, as well. Now, a key element in that, and then I will <laughs> uh, give you the floor again. A key element is that is that from my point of view, what we actually really need to do is not just invest in more laws, but we need to invest in more professional capabilities, which we call data stewards, um, that actually can um, make the decisions on what is fit for purpose. Because my fear with legislation is that it's going to codify just one way of doing this. And there are actually multiple ways of doing this that are more appropriate or less appropriate. And that requires a new profession to, to figure out right what is fit for purpose. And that's what we call data stewards. And so if there is one legislation, I would say make the presence of a data steward, recommend that as a first step and then learn from those data stewards on what works, what does not work. And then you can codify perhaps moving forward. And part of this is we can't really see the future clearly, can we? The speed at which data is being used to shape and form future society is on one hand, a terrific opportunity on another hand, a huge risk. So what are you seeing, you know, from from your point of view in terms of the application of deep tech tools, so machine learning and AI, 
as we move forward from this point, if we are building legislation or if we are creating greater knowledge and around data stewardship and the importance of that, as well as question equity, what is the potential given our current actions that we're taking? It depends on what actions we are going to take, right? And I think uh, um, I think we should not sit back and say uh, the future is um, uncertain. I think it's up to us to help shape the future, right? And I think now is the moment to, uh, perhaps that was the question uh, that, that you posed. I think now is the moment to, anyway, really determine what is the future that we want to have and how do we get there, right? And I think, um, and I think we all want, uh, from my point of view, well, who am I to say all, right? But uh, I think one desired future might be a, a more equitable future that is, in, that is informed uh, by uh, increased access in an equitable way that at the same time, coming back to your concerns, Adam, which are real, uh, uh, of course, are done in a responsible way, right? And, uh, and then the question is, okay, how do we get there? How do we prevent those asymmetries that, that generate power asymmetries? How do we um, not um, um, turn our back and say, this is all bad, uh, but how do we actually embrace it for good, but doing it so in a responsible way? And I think um, that's the mandate for figuring this out, right? And I think the work you do uh, is, of course, clearly advanced our understanding on what's the demand, what are the kinds of use cases, and how is it uh, that we can do so uh, in a sustainable, right? Because it's not just to do pilots. It's really about how do we do this in a more systematic, sustainable way. And we need a lot more of that, right? Uh, in order to actually really being able to then decide how do we go uh, forward. But there is no silver bullet here that uh, that we can use, right? Stefan, couldn't agree more. There's so many resources that GovLab make available. How can people get involved? What can they learn? Uh, what should they do next if they have an interest in, in this work? Um, well, they, they can, uh, of course, reach out. Uh, I think we're always eager to uh, collaborate, uh, both in terms of establishing this new profession of data stewards. So we have an executive course that you can uh, apply to, but we also uh, have a whole range of uh, tools, such as our methodology on formulating the questions, but also tools to determine uh, a data responsibility journey, as we call it. Uh, we also have a canvas to set up data collaboratives, and we also have have uh, incubator initiatives around open data at city levels. So a lot that, um, anyway, people might be interested in, uh, but also more importantly, uh, Christy and Adam, we are not just eager to people to reach out, but also to learn from them. Because as I said, there is this is a field that is rapidly evolving and I don't think anyone has figured it all out. And so we do need to collaborate more and exchange best practices, learn from experimentations, and then scale that up. Thank you, Stefan. We're very grateful for your work because it is a lighthouse for us internationally. And thank you for your time today. And I'm going to see you at Open Data Week in New York shortly. Thanks so much, Christy and Adam. Uh, always a pleasure. And yeah, looking forward to see you in person here in New York. So for those who are in New York, let me know. And in the new normal, we might uh, be able to meet again. Stefan, great to have you on the floor. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.